Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at youtube.com slash cover3 like we do here on Mondays, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks to all of you who are joining in, jump in the chat, have some fun. If you're listening on the audio product, well, hey, you, you know what you're going to hear at the end of the show before we get out of here? Some questions from the big old bag of mail, which means that you have an opportunity to add questions to future mailbag episodes. Go give us a five-star review, and in that review, put your mailbag question uh, we can't wait to get to it. We will continue to tackle those. And and Tom, we've already gotten one that is such a good mailbag question. I, I set it aside last week when I was going through the bag because I think it needs to be a whole episode. And I don't want to spoil it for everyone, but all I'm going to tell you is alternate universe playoff scenarios. Are you intrigued? Can one of the universes be not having a playoff at all? No, 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 no. I, I don't want to elaborate anymore. I don't want to give it away, but I, I do think it will be very fun. It's exactly the kind of off-season stuff that we no, love. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like really good off-season fodder. Uh, but we've we've got a ton right ahead of us. Uh, the uh, We will get to in just a little bit. Miami, we long looked at Mario Cristobal and we're like, hey, when are you going to get your offensive and defensive coordinator? We, we almost did it in a way, or at least I did, that was – you know, negative connotation, the idea that you weren't getting off to a good start. But we have offensive and defensive coordinator hires at Miami, and I, I think there's some some pretty good hires. We'll get into that. Uh, as well as the Senior Bowl was this past weekend. Got to see Kenny Pickett, got to see Desmond Ritter, got to see Sam Howell fumble a couple of times. Uh, so this would be a good time for us to look into the NFL draft future. Tom Fernelli, of course, does mock drafts and all kinds of evaluation for CBSSports.com. So we'll look at your quarterbacks. But we begin with... Brian Harson and Auburn, where we have a bit of news that is no news. It was a statement released from Auburn University. Uh, I will read it. It was just uh, about an hour or two ago. The Auburn administration is judiciously collecting information from a variety of perspectives, including our student-athletes, and moving swiftly to understand any issues in accordance with university policies and procedures. Decisions regarding the future of Auburn and its athletics program, as always, are made in the interest of our great university and in fairness to all concerned. We do not make institutional decisions based on social media posts or media headlines. Um, like Brian Harson's in Mexico right now. <laughs> Is he going to lose his job on vacation? Probably. I don't know if it'll happen while he's on vacation, but he's probably going to lose his job because it certainly feels like a lot of people are draping the crepe for this to happen. Um, Auburn is just like 
I don't know. I feel like that the way that that statement reads is like Auburn, everybody who cares about Auburn and all the Auburn boosters are going to do their own research and they're all going to come to a thousand different results based on what they want the result to be. And this entire situation is just a mess. And it's, I mean, Auburn's a mess. Auburn's going to keep being a mess. Like this is just, it's getting to circus territory with this program. Because if you just think of the history, like I understand why some people at Auburn probably want to get rid of Brian Harson. Like maybe you've had the, like there's, there's been a lot of turnover on the coaching staff. There's oh, been I don't a lot think of- there's any might. I've got a lot of uncertainty about this whole situation in terms of what to believe, what not to believe, what is, um, you know, power players trying to influence the true media narratives and the way that you can take social media posts and, and blow them out of proportion. There's a lot of uncertainty on my part, but what I am certain about is number one, there is a group that does not want Brian Harson to be the Auburn head football coach. I am and it's the same about that. It's the same group that didn't want him hired in the first place. They because, wanted Kevin Steele to yeah. be replacing Gus Malzahn. Yeah, let's not forget, like a year ago when this happened, there were the warring factions at Auburn over who the replacement was going to be. Kevin Steele had his army and his generals, and they were fighting for the job. But then, you know, the other people came in, and it ended up all of a sudden being Brian Harson, kind of seemingly out of nowhere at the time. Like, he wasn't really a name, if I recall correctly, that was being floated as a possible option. It just kind of happened. And ever since then, there have been people at Auburn who did not want Harson hired who have been basically digging for any single reason they can find to get rid of him. And some of the rumors are just like, there's a whole lot of stupid message board rumors being spread as I don't want to, I don't want to go Jimbo Fisher here, but there's a whole lot of stupidity from message boards that people are kind of taking as gospel and people are being a little too eager to spread because it will help them achieve the end goal that they desire. And I think some people are being used in this process to kind of fan those flames and have that happen. And I think at the end of the day, just based on all this, Brian Harson's going to end up getting fired, whether it's this week or next week or sometime during the season, it's pretty clear that there are enough people in charge or with power in Auburn who want him gone. And I understand it for football reasons. I, I, I know that there's been a lot of turnover on the coaching staff. I know that there's been a lot of players in the transfer portal. But for me, like players entering the transfer portal after getting a new coach, that's not out of the ordinary, especially now with the COVID year and everybody getting a free transfer. That's probably going to be the norm at most places going forward. Guys are going to stick around. New coaches hired be like, ah, not really digging this. This isn't what I came here for. I'm going to go somewhere else and find something else. But there's also the fact that Auburn's recruiting class, I guess, wasn't good enough, at least for what they want to be able to compete with what they want. But I'm 18 in the country, but still way, but like, I guess, like seven or eight in the SEC mm-hmm. at that point. So you're looking up at uh, many of your division rivals. And of course, Georgia, your cross division rival in the SEC. Everyone is recruiting better than you, than Brian Harson. If you look at your immediate mm-hmm. most important foes in the SEC. And and that's understandable because we know how important recruiting is. And if Auburn fancies itself as a team that's going to win national titles, and it did win a national title in 2010, then it has to recruit better than it did in Harson's first class. And if you look at the just the way that they approached it and things, it's there's not a lot of indicators if you go through history that Harson's suddenly going to be, if he's not been that guy already, there's no indication really that he's going to suddenly become that guy that puts together top 10 classes. But the problem with 
this thought process, if this is indeed the driving factor behind it, and it's not just somebody's ego being bruised because they didn't get what they wanted originally. Like Tommy Tuberville had a lot of success at Auburn. And then Nick Saban showed up. And then Tommy Tuberville wasn't good enough. So they had to get rid of Tommy Tuberville. Gene Chizik comes in, wins the national title with Cam Newton, which, by the way, I think everything that's happened at Auburn is happening now is just further confirmation of how incredible Cam Newton Cam was, that he was able to take this program to a national title. But then Chizik, a few years after winning that national title, is not doing enough. He's gone. Gus Malzahn comes in. Gets to the BCS title game his very first year and then spends the rest of his tenure at Auburn pretty much teetering on the edge of being fired. But what Gus Malzahn did the entire time he was at Auburn was bring in top 10 recruiting classes. And guess what? Didn't matter because you're still up against Nick Saban. Now you're up against Kirby Smart, too. Now you're up against LSU. Now Jimbo Fisher's at Texas A&M, so you've got to compete with that. They just put together the greatest recruiting class of all time. And when you just look at Auburn right now, we talked about this last week, where it's kind of starting to enter Tennessee territory as far Mm -hmm. as the circus value of it. What's the one thing Auburn and Tennessee have in common? Um, Orange? No, they're the only two programs in the SEC that, as currently constructed, have to play both Georgia and Alabama every single oh, season. Yeah, I see what and, you're saying. And that's really hard to compete with. And now you got to consider, too, Texas and Oklahoma are coming. So who can Auburn, if they fired Harson right now, who the hell are they bringing into this job after seeing the kind of things that, you know, t- getting rid of a coach after one year, getting rid of n- never being good enough, all these warring factions, who the hell is Auburn going to bring in to get a singular vision for the program that can not only keep everybody in line, but can do it while competing with all those other teams for national titles. I think that the job in and of itself is incredibly intimidating. And the fact that you have now Texas A&M operating at a new level means that you're that, that Auburn schedule is the toughest uh, one of the toughest schedules in the entire country every single year that they roll it out just because of the makeup of being in the SEC West and um, and playing George in the cross division. That doesn't mean that you should not get rid of Brian Harson. Like no. I, I, I do want to be able, because you're right, if, if a team finishes a season on a five-game losing streak, has a not embarrassing loss in the bowl game, Houston was a really good team, top 25 team, but still you're losing to the American Athletic Conference team as Auburn. And you're looking at the the turnover on the staff. You, you could have reasons to want to fire Brian Harson and go hire someone else. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's going to cost $18.3 yeah. million. Yeah. And half of that, $9.15 million, will be due 30 days after you make the decision. Mm-hmm. Now, let's put that out. You put that money for buying out Harson, which you will find a reason to do it with cause. But you just paid Gus all that money to go away. Now you're going to have to pay Harson all this money to go away. And then you're going to have to pay the lawyers a whole bunch of money to get them to argue and convince a judge that, no, there was a real reason for this. It wasn't just where we feel dumb and we made a mistake and we're trying to cover it over. And we have seen with like Kansas and UConn who have gone down that road in the past. That doesn't really work well for most of the schools when they try this. They just end up paying a whole lot of money to not really save anything. So now you've burned, you've thrown all that money into a fire. You've burned it. And now you have to find more money to bring in a coach of the caliber that you want to who will then bring in a staff of the caliber that you want, who will then have the recruiting staff or, you know, 
whatever the plan, blueprint, foundation that you want. None of this stuff is free. And you've just wasted $40 million in the last 13 months. So I don't know. And like I see the chat, like people are saying, you know, they could bring in Hugh Freeze. Okay, that's a name, right? We know Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze was at Ole Miss, recruited well. How many division titles did he win? I, I he came a, a crazy play away from Ole Miss, be like a fourteen twenty five conversion. Were Hugh Freeze's results at Ole Miss any different than what Auburn's been doing? Like Auburn, I, you could say has had better seasons. Like Auburn won a national title at least. Hugh Freeze was never playing in the playoff. Hugh Freeze never won the SEC. Auburn was getting there. Auburn beat Alabama. Ole Miss under Hugh Freeze beat Alabama a couple times. But my point is that there is no coach outside of like Urban Meyer who I can think of that you can bring in who would realistically come into this situation that is going to help you achieve the goal that you want. So you might as well just let Harson sit there for another year and then fire him and save yourself some money. So that brings up a very interesting point because one of the things that I've picked up from trying to dig in on this is that recruiting in the state of Alabama, the 2023 class is very good. And we've seen how being able, for example, um, we reference it often, um, the Steve Spurrier, South Carolina, best, the best teams that Steve Spurrier had at South Carolina, of which Shane Beamer, you know, helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, set up the recruiting apparatus there, a big part of why so many love him around Columbia. But the talent in the state of South Carolina, you know, whether it was Clowney, I think Gilmore might have been from South Carolina as well, but it was just, it was a unique peak of talent in the state of South Carolina. And when you are located there, that might be an opportunity for you to take advantage. And with some of these recruiting struggles from this past signing period, and with some of the the ways that, and look, there are so many, um, one SEC coach said, one source said, what, like, I mean, we're just, everyone's talking. The lid, the lid is off on everybody bad-mouthing Brian Harson right now while he's sitting there trying to enjoy his pina coladas in Mexico and take some time off. But this upcoming class, the 2023 class in the state of Alabama is supposed to be really good. And there is a little bit of a fear that Brian Harson, based on the early returns, is going to miss out on an opportunity to bring in the kind of in-state talent that can really help change uh, your your teams and your program's outcomes. Mm-hmm. But who's the coach that won't do that? Like, who's who's the coach that's coming in and is going to beat Alabama to those players? Is going to beat LSU to those players? A and M, Georgia, all those programs. Who is the coach that's beating those guys right now? Who's what? What prospect is looking at Auburn right now and saying, oh, yeah, that's definitely the place I want to be like, are the coordinators leaving because they don't like working with Brian Harson, or are they leaving because they see everybody in the building is trying to fire their boss and therefore they're going to be looking for a job themselves soon? Let's be honest here. Mm. I, I think that they can go and uh, Brian Harson can be the head coach in 2022, but I'm I am thinking that uh that, that right now this is this does I don't know what do you think what's your guess right now not what should happen but because oh Harson's gone I mean the, the, there's too much what I don't know if it'll be today I don't know if it'll be tomorrow like I said I don't know if it'll be this week but it's the clock is ticking like once this stuff starts there's really no going back the only way Harson could save his job is if they let him start the season and Auburn makes like a title run that's it but. I don't think that's going to happen. So, <laughs> And the problem is like, that's what has, cause I, I said, I've only got a couple certainties. One is that there's a group of people that do not want Brian Harson as their head coach. And the other certainty is that many of those people have tried every Avenue 
mm-hmm. to make Brian Harson not the head coach. Mm-hmm. Like, let's point to the social media posts. Let's point to what the players are saying. Let's point to these other photos that are circulating around on message boards. Let's point to um, the way that he talks to players. You know, they get it's almost like you're just grasping and whatever sticks, they're going to say, yeah, 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 that's the reason. But you make a good point about Kansas and UConn because I don't like fire for cause is going to be very, very difficult based on the immediate legal precedent that we have here. And I don't think that Brian Harson's going to be like, Oh, you guys don't like me. I'll, I'll, I'll take 12 instead of the full 18. Like if I'm yeah, Brian no. Harson, I'm like, no, they're, trying to, they're trying to fire me on vacation and spreading rumors about me. I'm getting every damn dime. I yeah. can get. I, if, if, but if those powerful people who um, do not want Brian Harson as their head coach and have been activating every lever that they can pull and anything that they can do to make it happen. If they get their way, I mean, it's just going to be expensive. But what's, what's Auburn should consider is like they want to do they want to find their own Jimbo, right? They want to find somebody who can come in and just from the top down run the program, have a direction and get everybody in line to do what you got to do to get like that recruiting class to raise the floor of your program. Jimbo left Florida State for Texas A&M because Florida State was Auburn. He took the Texas A&M job because he knew he could do that there. Whoever Auburn hires, that's the thing that if you're if Auburn's calling you and may offering you the job, keep in mind that there might be a bunch of other people there who, as soon as you are hired, are going to be doing the same thing that the other people hiring you have been doing to Harson for the last year, just looking for any crack or any reason to get rid of you, which is why I don't think that job is going to be nearly as desirable as a lot of people at Auburn think. Like, I feel like maybe they think they could just pay somebody to come and it's like, we'll offer them so much money they can't say no. But I don't know that that's really the case. Okay, real quick. What sitting head coach in at the FBS level do you think would leave their current job to go take Auburn? At the FBS level or at the Power 5 level? Um. I don't know. I don't know I what my I, list is for Power Five. I'm just saying, though. I think a lot of G5 coaches would, right? But I don't think those are the kind of names well, that, it, like, hey, like Bill it, Clark gets gets a shot. You know, like all of a sudden, like Bill Clark has helped UAB build up into something. And, yeah, but it's, you know, Bill, we're going to go and give him the opportunity to take over but, at Auburn. But Bill Clark's from the Brian Harson mold. Not, you know, I mean, he's not the guy that's just going to go out and recruit the absolute hell out of it and then roll the ball out and let all the great players play. That's a program builder. That's what Brian Harson is. And I, so I don't think Bill Clark is the kind of guy that you're looking for. But I mean, if you think of like the top names that we typically mention when it comes to, you know, jobs being open, like if Michigan had come open, Luke Fickle's not taking the Auburn job. Matt Campbell's the opposite of what Auburn would want. Like all those kind of names and those guys at the Power Five gigs, like would Mel Tucker leave Michigan State for Auburn? God, I don't want to think about that. Maybe, <laughs> but if you're just paying $40 million to make two coaches go away and Mel Tucker just signed that deal with Michigan yeah. State, you can't afford to get him anyway. Like, would James Franklin leave Franklin. Penn State for Auburn? I doubt no, it. I don't think so. No. And it's so, it's like, I don't know who this great coach is that you think is available that would come running to you. And again, I think Hugh Freeze would. Right. But I don't think Hugh Freeze is going to give you the results that you want. But Hugh Freeze wouldn't be Brian Harson, and it sure sounds like the number one desire is not Brian Harson as a head coach. Um, Although, considering some of the reasons that they're trying to come up with to fire Harson, I'm not sure Freeze is the right direction to go. It de- it depends on how they package it. Again, they are just uh, they 
they're doing um the the like firing bingo board and just hoping that they hit it. Just just mm-hmm. hit as many squares as possible and let's let's hope that it can happen. Um you mentioned if uh if Michigan had come open so another big piece of uh, of news from the last couple of days is that former Michigan offensive coordinator Josh Gaddis has accepted a job on Mario Cristobal's staff to be the offensive coordinator. Now, this also comes reportedly as Kevin Steele. Hey, Kevin Steele, good to see your name again. He's everywhere. As, as Kevin Steele seems to be in line for his DC. There's a there's a second part of this conversation that I do want to turn the spotlight on Michigan. But first, for Mario Cristobal, I... I, I think this is good, and I think that this is probably the 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 good reminder that you gave us, where it's like, don't you think that after National Signing Day, things are going to start turning really quickly, and then all of a sudden, we look up and the Hurricanes have a staff, and it's it's probably looking okay. Um, they They seem to have made the kinds of offers that made being the offensive coordinator for Mario Cristobal, no matter what we've discussed, hinted at, or alluded to here, they have made that more attractive than being Michigan's offensive coordinator as Josh Gaddis decides to take that job. Uh, what are your thoughts on the hire? Uh, Mario Cristobal is benefiting from Jim Harbaugh's NFL flirtation because I think that, I mean, if there was the quote yesterday that we saw from Gaddis, which I don't remember what it was exactly, but it was basically like, hey, he told the players, he texted the players, hey, you know, I want to go somewhere I'm wanted. So my thought process is that Jim Harbaugh openly flirts with the NFL, goes to interview with an NFL team on freaking national signing day, thinking he's going to get the job. And then according to reports, he never even got offered the gig. So now he's got to come back to Michigan, which is where he always wanted to be. And he's going to be forever. But I'm wondering if Gaddis thought, well, if he leaves, I'm in a pretty good spot to get this job. I'm the offensive coordinator. I've been here for a few years. And I'm thinking maybe when Gaddis was kind of floating that up the chain, he kind of didn't get the response he was hoping to hear. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's like, okay, so Harbaugh is saying he's never going to go to the NFL, but I can't really believe that because this has happened multiple times, although this is the first time he's interviewed. And even if he does, I'm probably not going to be the guy they replace him with. So... Why not leave this situation and go to a new situation in Miami with a coach entering his first year where there's probably more stability and you're getting like that kind of fresh start. And I mean, Josh Gaddis is still only 38. So maybe he also feels like he can get, you know, like down in that area, Miami, maybe there are better fits for what he likes to do with his offense and his receivers, because we know Gaddis has had a lot of success with receivers in his career. We know Barton loved him. He called him dirt bike. You know, he's talking about all the dirt bikes. He was going to be bringing to Ann Arbor. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that for Mario Cristobal, I, I, when I wrote about this yesterday, when it happened, like I I made the joke, it's like some, they say, you know, good things come to those who wait. And I says, this is a situation where a good thing came to a guy who had a bunch of options say no to him first. And then he finally got this guy. And I think that this is like considering where you could have been because yesterday was two months to the day that Miami hired Cristobal. And that's how long it took him to find their offensive coordinator. All that considered, I think he did pretty good. I don't think you, this is like a grand slam, but I think this is a good hire. And I think that Gaddis has shown a good ability as an offensive coordinator. I think that Gaddis has been a good recruiter throughout his tenure. I think he's a very good, he's very good. At, he's developed a lot of wide receivers. So there's a lot of positives to this for Cristobal and for Miami that make a lot of sense. And I think that, 
I, I'm not as high on the Kevin Steele hiring as I am the Gaddis. I think that's the better of the two, honestly, because again, you never know Kevin Steele's faction might be behind the scenes. You don't know. He might be coming for your job. But I, I do think that Miami's in a good spot here. And I think it's a good sign, regardless of the coach, that like to lure somebody away from Michigan, obviously there's all the other factors you have to consider, but Michigan can afford to keep a coach if it wants to. So Miami's got to outbid. And considering like that's the one thing that we've always heard about Miami is like the money has not really matched their desire or their ambition as far as their football program in recent years. Like they want to be the Miami Vols competing for national titles, but they haven't been able to spend on that level. Taking Michigan's offensive coordinator and bringing him to Miami in a quote unquote lateral move to the same position suggests that there's a pretty good amount of money behind it. That took some convincing. So that's a good sign, regardless of the name. But I think for me, honestly, the bigger story right now is Michigan. Okay, before we get there, we would you say Cade McNamara noted improvement in terms of as a quarterback from yeah. what you last saw to you know what we saw this season? Tyler Van Dyke as a player I'm very, very high on. ACC offensive freshman of the year. Mm -hmm. I I think that you look at the improvement and the development that we saw from McNamara and you think, okay, like this, because I always thought that in the offensive coordinator search, that was a big piece of this because you don't want to screw it up. Like Van Dyke has, has looked really, really good with those early returns. But if he's just that good for the next three years, then That's, you're yeah. going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to see year over year growth, year over year development. And so I think that in McNamara's jump um, from the end of the 2020 COVID shortened season, which is a mess anyway, mm -hmm. but so you could kind of see that he was emerging at, at least as the one there to the full season and the way that he played in the big 10 championship season. I think that you're encouraged at least in terms of trying to check that box of quarterback development. Yeah. And no disrespect to Cade McNamara, who I thought played very well this year. And I think still has you know room to improve. I think Van Dyke's a better prospect. I, I, yes. I think that Van Dyke has a very high ceiling. Like I think that's a possible first round NFL pick QB. And I don't see that. Caden McNamara no matter what so there's obviously an upgrade there what's going to also going to be interesting to me as far as the Gaddis Miami side of this is I want to I like Michigan was very run heavy this year mm -hmm. and you got the sense that Harbaugh probably took a little bit more like put more restraints on what that offense could do compared to what they were doing the first couple of years when Gaddis came because they were a little more open and I feel like they got a little conservative and there has been you know like for Mario Cristobal's teams at Oregon, Joe Moorhead's offense that they ran with the Ducks was not the same Joe Moorhead offense you saw at Mississippi State, and it wasn't the same one you saw at Penn State. It had all the same principles, but there was it was a more conservative. And I wonder if we're going to see Gaddis open things back up a little bit more or if Miami's going to become run-heavy because Miami barely ran the ball at all last year, but I think that might have also been its offensive line. Offensive line. I was going to say, they, they, they've got a personnel mm -hmm. uh, difference with Michigan for them to be able to be as run-heavy as, as the Wolverines were. Yeah, so that's going to be an interesting thing to follow, but I do think that, again, I, I like a lot of what Gaddis does. I like a lot of the core principles and what you've seen in his offenses, and I think that could come in handy at Miami because it is – it's spread-ish, but it's also got a whole lot of like, you know, your typical West Coast kind of pro style kind of elements to it that I think could work with the talent advantage. Okay, so you mentioned it. And also, shout out to chat. Um, Suzuki, the official dirt bikes of the U. <laughs> Listen, there are NIL opportunities with dirt bikes uh, in this offense mm -hmm. for all the skill players. I totally agree. Great call. Um, thanks, thanks for making us laugh. But what in the world... 
do we think about where Michigan's at right now? Because Jim Harbaugh, like we we had our Jim Harbaugh's back. Everything's happy. This is great for college football. This is great for Michigan. But his his defensive coordinator left to go back to the Ravens. His offensive coordinator just made a, a lateral move to go take the offensive coordinator job in Miami. So you've got Jim Harbaugh, but you've got two of your most important staff positions unfilled. You've got tons of turnover all, all over the roster. Like how, how much confidence is there in the Wolverines heading into spring practice? Because yes, it's February 7th. We are going to start talking about this program heading into spring practice pretty soon. I hope Michigan fans enjoyed 2021 because I don't think 2022 is going to be nearly as fun. I, I, you know, the coaching situation is weird because it's like, I, you know, you would think that a coach interviewing for an NFL job on national signing day would cost him recruits. In reality, it just ended up costing him his coordinators. But I don't think Mike McDonald leaving is really related to that. Like, you know, Bud and Danny aren't here, so we could use soccer terms. I kind of felt like Mike McDonald was sent to Michigan on loan from Baltimore. Like, John Harbaugh said, you know what, here, I got a guy. You need a DC? I got a guy I really like. Yeah, Yeah. I got a guy I really like. He doesn't really have a whole lot of play calling experience, though. So you take him for a year, let him get experienced running the defense on his own, and then maybe I'll call him back. And then immediately after one year, Baltimore parts ways with Wink Martindale, its defensive coordinator, and bang, McDonald's brought back to Baltimore after his year on loan at Michigan. So I think that's all speculation on my part, to be clear. But I feel like that might have been what happened there. The offensive coordinator spot is probably going to be an internal hire or a promotion. But it's kind of similar to the Auburn situation in that for a lot of the reasons Gaddis is probably looking to leave, like high it's Michigan, so it's attractive. Being the offensive coordinator at Michigan is going to be a huge step up for a lot of coaches, and a lot of coaches just want that job. But the question is, do you trust that Harbaugh is going to be there? Like, You've got to. I mean, so you're are you leaving the asterisk on this like Harbaugh? Like, what, what's the headline? Harbaugh is recommitted to Michigan. He says this isn't going to happen again. Like, it's how how much credence do you give that? Um, right now, a hundred percent. Where we will be next winter, I don't know, because. Harbaugh had been somebody who for the last few years, and I'd been on this show saying it repeatedly. I, no, he's there. Like, he's serious. Like, these rumors that get floated aren't really, you know, they, they might be for a raise or they're not really coming from him as much as maybe they're just coming from outlets trying to get clicks. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's always very easy to just say, hey, Jim Harbaugh to this NFL job, click this link. But after he interviews for the job, and it's like the dude's coming off his best season at Michigan and so you wonder, like, maybe he feels like he accomplished what he came back to accomplish. And so I, right now, yeah, they didn't offer him the job. He has no choice. What's he going to come back and say, yeah, I'm here for now, but I can't rule it out. No, of course he's going to say, yeah, I'm back and I'm never going to do this again. I just had to find out. And maybe that is 100% the truth. But as we've talked about in the show, nobody really ever knows what Jim Harbaugh's thinking. Even those close to him don't know what he's thinking most of the time. So it's just, it's going to make it hard, I think, to bring in a top big name candidate with so much uncertainty around the job, which is why I'm pretty sure the offensive coordinator will be an internal promotion. Defensive side, I don't know, because that was, they get rid of Don Brown, who he'd been working with for years, and they bring in McDonald, and McDonald did wonderful things for that defense. Now, obviously, you know, having Aiden Hutchinson, David Ajabo, Daxton Hill, and guys like that help a lot. And the, all they're all gone, by the way. But so it's I don't know. It's it's gonna be interesting. There obviously there's still plenty of talent on the roster. They just put together another top ten recruiting class. So that's not the question. It's just gonna be 
who do they get to run that defense? And now that it's February, I don't know what great names are available to come in. Mm. We will keep our eyes on it, of course. Coming up on the other side with the Senior Bowl this past weekend, it's time to take a look at some of the players that we know way better than any of those NFL writers. That's right, the college players in the 2022 NFL Draft. It's Tom Fernelli's top quarterbacks in the class next. Well, the Senior Bowl was this past weekend in Mobile, Alabama. It is uh, an opportunity for, um, you know, just real cramming for, you know, the the, the same way that uh, my class attendance in North Carolina wasn't great. It, as a generalization, it was, it was not good. But there was always an opportunity right near the end, about two weeks left to go before the exam. If I checked in enough, if I studied real hard, I'd give myself a chance at a passing grade, a chance but a chance at a passing grade. And Tom, I kind of feel like that's what happens here with like the senior bowl and with some of the, the pro days that are coming up because every team has scouts that you send either regionally or all over the country, depending on your budget. But you really, you really see these NFL teams just do a, playing a lot of catch up. Now we have been following these players throughout their entire career. And you have also been uh, doing your own evaluation you know, with an eye on the NFL draft. You do mock drafts for cbssports.com. So as we, as we look at um, these quarterbacks, and I'm, I, if you've got senior bowl takes, I'm all ears. <laughs> but uh, I think it's I'm more interested in, uh, you know, our Kenny Pickett, our Desmond Ritter, our Malik Willis. You know, like who? How, how are you starting to stack these quarterbacks up, and how do you see this quarterback class uh, as we continue to count down? I guess now a little bit less than three months from the NFL draft. Yeah, I was not at the senior bowl, so that I don't, you know, that's not really something I could use other than talking to people who were there and reading what people were writing. But just I'm very early in the process. My first mock draft goes up this Friday, but just oh, nice. but just based on everything that I have watched and have seen in my life, like I feel like from what I talked to people at the senior bowl this week is pretty much a fair reflection of what the quarterback class is this year. Or it's like, yeah, some guys had good moments, some guys had good drills, and then they also all had kind of, you know, some downsides to them. It's like there was some stuff that kind of causes you to worry. And right now, my board, like I have them ranked, but the reality is I just, like my top 10 is in three different tiers. So I'll go in the order that they're ranked, but there's really, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll do it by tier. My top okay. tier is Pickett, Ritter, and Malik Willis. I think Kenny Pickett, and I'm, Again, don't take this out of context. I'd better not see this quote or the video showing up. Yes. yes. Pickett reminds me of Burrow in a lot of ways. I don't think he's as good as Burrow. I just think that if you look at his development and his career path and just kind of his personality, his build, his type, the way he plays, there's a lot of similarities there. And I think that he's probably at this point the most – in this class, he's the one I feel like could step into a team right away mm -hmm. and play at least functionally. Like he could be the Mac Jones of this class. Whereas, like, he's not going to be, you know, although Mac Jones did play in the Pro Bowl yesterday, but still, I don't think he's going to be an all pro level kind of QB, like tear the world up from his very first game in the NFL. But I do think that in the right team with the right players around him and the right coaching, he's the guy that could step in and, you know, at least compete for a playoff spot with you. Um, Desmond Ritter, I think, is more upside than anything at this point, although I do think that he's ready-ish. And I think that behind Pickett as far as that, that he's probably the second. But Malik Willis I have in this first tier 
but it needs to be the right situation because there is no question that in this class, the reason Malik Willis is going to be ranked as high as he is by most people, like a lot of people will have him as the top QB. I've got him in my top tier. It's just his upside is far better than anybody else in this class because if things click for him, he's going to be a stud. It's just the odds of it clicking aren't great. So like if I'm Malik Willis or if I'm a team interested in drafting Malik Willis, I would do it with like a bridge quarterback for a year, kind of like what San Francisco did with Trey Lance, where like I got maybe a guy like hell, maybe Washington gets, you know, the 49ers let Garoppolo go. Maybe the Washington, maybe the commanders sign Jimmy G for a year and then draft Malik Willis with their first pick with the idea of letting Jimmy G kind of maybe compete for a playoff spot, give us a good floor while we groom Willis. Because Willis, if you put him in a team right now, and throw him out there in day one, and it's not a very good team, it's going to be bad. So explain this to me. Um, Desmond Ritter and Malik Willis are both from the 2017 recruiting class. Mm -hmm. Malik Willis had multiple stops, first at Auburn, then at Liberty, um, and Desmond Ritter was a four-year starter. They are both, I agree with you, that there are physical tools that lead to the word upside being used a lot, but is it, it is my sort of like college centric brain that immediately wants to put up a counter and say, well, they've had opportunities for it all to click. If it hasn't clicked yet, then why is still the, the hard, the hard sell on the upside still there? Is it just because you have to take, oh, anyway, what, what is that's your fair. understanding no, that's, of that? That's perfectly fair. But the one thing I will point out with Ritter is he has improved. Yes. Like we, we talked about it earlier with like Van Dyke. Like if you're Miami, you're very excited, but if he doesn't improve, yeah. Ritter improved throughout his college career. He got a little bit better every single season. So there's that kind of room to project of where he's going to go. And also, like, this is no disrespect, obviously, to a team that made the playoff. But if he's on an NFL team, he's going to be surrounded with a lot better players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. <laughs> and that Cincinnati offensive line was good, but it wasn't great. And I think that Ritter, if you put him in the right team with the right players around him, I think he has a chance to be pretty good. I don't think he's going to be, again, like Pickett. I don't think he's going to be a great NFL quarterback, but I think he's a guy you could get by with in the NFL and who has some upside to him. It's just Malik Willis is, like, from the tools perspective, is just a freak. Like, he's obviously, he's, he's, he can run. He's very fast. He's got a rocket arm. He can make he can make throws that nobody else in this class can make. But he's also done it on a team where he's not surrounded by the greatest talent. And by and large, he's not really facing the greatest talent. So there's going to be that kind of adjustment period to seeing him with an NFL team going up against NFL defenses, which is why if I'm drafting Malik Willis, I do not want him starting right away. I want to I want to coach him up a little more because that's the other thing, too. Like that offense that he's in at Liberty, the Hugh Freeze offense, like what they do, it's very simple. And that's great. It's it's great for a quarterback when you don't really have time in college to prep like the same way that the NFL gives you time. Because like you can live at the facility once you're a professional in the NFL. There's no limits to how much time you get to be, you know, around coaches. So I think that he's got a lot of coaching left to go through and improvement to go because I don't think he's got the greatest mechanics. I don't think he's been coached all that well. I don't think he's in the most complicated offense. So he's got, there's going to be a steep learning curve for him at the NFL, but if he can figure it out physically, he's got everything you want. And if it clicks, watch out. That's the guy who could be the pro bowler. That's the guy who could maybe win a super bowl and be the franchise QB. It's just the odds of that happening. Aren't great. So you got Pickett, Ritter, Malik Willis is your top tier 
Um, what is what is the next tier look like? Uh, the next tier is four players. It is Carson Strong, Matt Corral, Sam Howell, and Caleb Ellaby from Western Michigan. Uh, Carson Strong, I like a lot. Like he's got a big arm, and he's he's pretty accurate. Like if you look at the receiving numbers, maybe it's like his completion percentage and all that stuff isn't as great. But when you just look at the ball placement, like when he gets set and he's in a clean pocket and he gets his feet right, the ball is in the right place. And I mean, like it's in the right place for the receiver to catch it. It's also in the right place to get his receiver more yards after the catch. He does a lot of that. Like he's got very good instincts and kind of, um, anticipation on throws and how to place them. So I really like Carson Strong for that. I think he's somebody that you could start right away. But again, for all these guys, the ideally, I'd rather have all of them on the bench if they're as long as they're in the right situations. Um, Matt Corral, I love so many things about Matt Corral, but a lot of the things that I love about him are what caused me to be concerned about him at the NFL level because he is not big. Mm-hmm. He's slight, and he's not somebody who shies away from a contact he's aggressive he's not afraid to run and i feel like he co- he takes one of those runs over the middle like we saw him sprain his ankle in the sugar bowl which that's going to happen to anybody but like if he's running and he gets clocked by a safety or a linebacker hmm, those are the nfl safeties and linebackers are you know the sec has got a lot of huge great defensive players but everybody in the nfl is an sec defender you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. so I would worry about his durability and holding up, but I do think he's got a pretty high ceiling if it clicks. Sam Howell is what kind of what we talked about with the other guys. Like Sam Howell never got better. Like awesome. It's awesome as a freshman. Yeah. And maybe, you know, some of it is unfair because, you know, North Carolina lost a lot of key players on offense from last season into this season. And maybe that played a big role in it, but it's just, you never really saw the jump. Like as a freshman, you were like, Oh God, this guy, couple years from now this guy might be the first QB taken but it just it never really clicked after that it's like it was the same kind of numbers and so maybe if you fall in love with the tools you can work it but I don't think he's like an elite prospect from that perspective I think that you know he's a good prospect um and then Caleb Ellaby is somebody who I'm sure most of our listeners aren't too familiar with who I've liked for a while because he was he's from like somewhere outside of St. Louis when he was in high school, he was on Illinois' radar as a quarterback, and they never offered him, but I really liked him, and he ended up going to Western Michigan, and I've followed him at Western Michigan, and I think that he's kind of like, it's very much an RPO-heavy offense, and mm-hmm. I feel like if you've got a lot of that read option RPO stuff in your offense at the NFL level, kind of like what the Dolphins do with Tua, I think, like, Ellaby, I think, in Miami would make a lot of sense if they ran that same offense, but I don't think they're going to with Mike McDonald coming in from San Francisco. It's going to be more of the uh, Kyle Shanahan, West Coasty offense kind of deal. But I do think that in the right system, Ellaby is a guy who could be a good dude to have on your roster as a backup. Okay. So, so like, we've very, in Tier 2, we've immediately gotten into the, not only don't start him, but, like, this oh, is yeah. just, These we're, are probably we're just yeah, this roster is, depth. This is not a very good quarterback class, which doesn't mean, because quarterbacks are... If if any of us knew how to predict them, we'd be much. It'd be much easier to do it. But I just I don't really think there are a whole lot of long term NFL starters in this class. Period. I think that this is mostly guys who are going to be backups on rosters for a while, and that's reality. And then tier three, my bottom three guys in my top ten are Bailey Zappi, who I think is very system dependent. I don't think he's outstanding at anything, but I think that he's smart. And I think he knows, you know, I think he, he can anticipate throws and he's got good accuracy. Uh, then I've got Jack Cohn, 
And then 10th, I've got Skylar Thompson. Okay. Um, Jack, Jack Cone? I yeah. mean, just big. I, I, I've liked Cone ever since he was at Wisconsin. I, I think, honest to God, I understand why they did it. Because Graham Mertz was a highly rated recruit, and I supported the idea at the time, too, because what I'd heard of Mertz is like, okay, that makes sense. I think Wisconsin downgraded when it let Cone leave, mm. and they went to Mertz. I think if Wisconsin has Jack Cone this year, and again, he's got his own deficiencies, too. Don't get me wrong. But I just think he's more accurate vertically, at least between the numbers, and that is something that Wisconsin could have really taken advantage of this year. And we saw it in flashes at Notre Dame that I think Wisconsin would have been better off. And I think that Cone, you know, if like, again, this is another guy who I think has a chance to be a solid, you know, veteran backup on an NFL team. Never a guy that you're probably going to want to hand the keys to. But if your guy gets hurt, like you drafted Matt Corral and he gets knocked out for a month with a broken clavicle or something, Jack Cone's not a terrible, could be a good guy to have. Just come in and try to tread water for a few weeks. And then Skylar Thompson to me is more development than anything because he just I, I think with his mobility and his arm there's still some untapped potential there that I feel like in that Kansas State offense, which is not really designed for it, didn't truly get tapped into. That I think if an NFL team, a smart NFL team, might want to take a shot on to see how they can develop it and make it happen. Uh, Tom Fernelli, first mock draft of the season, will be released on Friday. Make sure you check it out at cbsports.com. Follow him at Tom Fernelli to see it. First tier quarterbacks, Kenny Pickett, Desmond Ritter, Malik Willis. The second tier, Carson Strong, Matt Corral, Sam Howell, Caleb Ellaby. And then the third tier for his top 10 quarterbacks, Bailey Zappi, Jack Cohn, and Skylar Thompson. I am. I, I need to remove the unfair grades or uh, associations that I have with the panic and the identity crisis that Notre Dame's offense had throughout the season, yeah. because that was a whirlwind uh, for the fighting Irish as they were just kind of all over the place, trying to figure out what was going to make them uh, the best team that they could be. Of course it finished all right. Jack Cohn played well coming down the stretch. Notre Dame did end in end its season in the new year six. Well, you mentioned Skylar Thompson. We're going to go into the big old bag of mail a little bit of a uh, Casey Thompson. Here we go. Great podcast, gentlemen. I have some Cornhusker questions for you. Is Casey Thompson an upgrade over Adrian Martinez? Can Mark Whipple replicate his success at Pitt? Can Mickey Joseph dip into the South and improve Nebraska's recruiting? And finally, with an easier schedule, can Nebraska finally make a bowl game in 2022? Keep up the good work and looking forward to more degenerate predictions and prognostications. Uh, I'll start with the first one. Yeah, I, mean, I, this, this, I think the first and the last are the ones we're trying to answer, and the rest gets answered in, in between. I, I, Yeah, I think he can be. I mean, I think Mark Whipple coming in with the success he's had at Pitt, if he could bring that. I think that Thompson's a better fit for what Whipple was doing at Pitt with Pickett than Adrian Martinez would have been. Now, I'll share these numbers with you. Keep in mind, the, the caveat here is that in his career, Adrian Martinez threw 1,055 passes and Casey Thompson threw only 290. So sample size matters. But that aside, if you look at it from a passing efficiency standpoint, Thompson was at 161.9. Martinez was at 139.5. Completion rate, about the same. Thompson's three-tenths or yeah, three tenths of a percent higher than Martinez, 63.8%. But when you get down to it, yards per attempt, Thompson, 8.35. Martinez, 8.05. Yards per completion, 13.09 for Thompson, 12.67 for Martinez, 
Air yards per attempt, Thompson's throwing nine and a half. Martinez is barely throwing eight. So this suggests that Thompson, a better vertical passer and more accurate down the field than Adrian Martinez was. And any Nebraska fan who watched Adrian Martinez sail throws over receivers' heads into waiting defensive backs' arms understands that undoubtedly. The other big deal here, too, is that Thompson, he's got a little more interceptions. He's got an interception rate in his career of 3.1%. And you might be surprised to learn that Adrian's was only 2.8%. But that's also partially due to Thompson's approach in that Texas offense where it's a much more vertical approach. And, you know, a lot of deep shots get intercepted more than the, the quick little slants and underneath throws. What really stands out, though, is Thompson's career touchdown rate is 10.3%. Adrian Martinez is at 4.3, so more than double. And then sack rate, Thompson gets sacked less than Martinez. And I often felt like Martinez, one of his biggest problems was he just stuck around too long. Like he waited for things to come open too long, and he would take a lot of sacks that were more on him than they were on his offensive line. So at least Thompson has shown the ability to want to get the ball out a little bit quicker. So, yeah, I, I think that if Whipple brings the same offense he had at Pitt to Nebraska, I think that Thompson's a better fit because, too, if you think back to Scott Frost's offenses at UCF, like when he had, you know, Mackenzie Mackenzie Milton and Dylan Gabriel and all that stuff, those are very good vertical passers. Mm -hmm. Adrian Martinez wasn't. Adrian Martinez was not a great fit for Frost's offense, which is why maybe that was kind of a weird decision to make when Frost showed up in Nebraska. But Thompson, I think, is a better fit for that. And I think that because of that, yeah, it could prove to be a decent upgrade. Not like a, you know, you're not going like from a three-star to a five-star kind of upgrade, but an upgrade nonetheless. For the Whipple effect, I'll add that it did take it did take a couple of years for the Whipple effect to really set in, the whippets to <laughs> really hit. Um, I think that it, Kenny Pickett mentioned in praise of Mark Whipple the fact that you know, he had come in and he really built it out and he built it from the ground up. So it you might not see the immediate fruits, at least in terms of if Scott Frost is going to be at Nebraska for, let's say, the next three years minimum and Mark Whipple is going to be his offensive coordinator for those three years, you might see more in 23 and 24 than you do in 22, at least in terms of the immediate impact, not to mention uh, – building out the skill positions in order to accommodate more of a vertical passing game and all of the other things that come with that. I always felt like Adrian Martinez having to be, um, you know, uh, having to rely more on his athleticism, trying to be a playmaker, not necessarily down the field, but closer to the line of scrimmage. I think that some of that was also based on the personnel that Nebraska did or didn't have, that it just didn't have those kind of weapons that can threaten Uh, a defense down the field vertically. So uh, all those things, of course, will take a little bit of time. But what about that last part? Do you think that Nebraska will be a bold team in 2022? I mean, sure. They gotta. They were just the best three and nine team of all time. The best three and nine team is destined to find a way to six and six. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say it's more likely to happen than not, but I just I've gotten to the point with Nebraska where it's like, man, I'm I'm not trying to be out here predicting what they're gonna do anymore. But to the question, like the schedule. They open with Northwestern in Ireland. I think Northwestern's probably gonna be the worst team in the Big Ten next year. So I'll give that a win. Okay, that's one. North Dakota in Lincoln. Not North Dakota State, North Dakota, 2-0. Georgia Southern, 
better be three and zero. Although Georgia Southern we'll, we'll is not a team second. I would just overlook. Uh, Oklahoma, that game's in Lincoln. I think that game's a lot more winnable now than it was two months ago. But without Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley, and now instead um, looking at our our current situation, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But I'm still going to give Oklahoma the edge there. So now we're three and one. Then you get your bye, and you get Indiana at home. And again, the only time you've left home to this point is to go to Ireland. So you, you've got a cushy schedule going here. Indiana at home, sure, four and one. Rutgers on the road, I'm not giving you that win. First road game, oh, no. four and two. Purdue on the road, four and three. Bye week. Illinois comes to town. Well, Illinois won like what three straight against you, including in Lincoln. Four and four. Four, four and four. Uh, Minnesota at home, five and four. Michigan on the road, five and five. Oh my Wisconsin at home, five and six. And come down to Iowa. Iowa on the road, five and seven. So you you have to win without a doubt. You have to win all your non-con games. You got to beat Rutgers. Yeah, and you've got to beat either Rutgers, Purdue, or Illinois. You've got to win at least one of or two of those games. I think. College football in 2022, can Nebraska beat Rutgers? That is my promotion for the upcoming season to get you all fired up for some of the biggest questions that we have concerning the sports blue bloods. Can Nebraska beat Rutgers? Um, well, you mentioned Georgia Southern. This uh, this next mailbag question. What are your expectations for Clay Helton in his first year at Georgia Southern and how the new Sunbelt Conference looks compared to the new group of five? It's hard to know or come up with realistic expectations for Clay Helton in year one because it's like, are, are they going to be running the option? Do we know? I, do, I don't have a, a specific scheme uh, That's specific it's like, expectation, but I think that it is a reasonable expectation to think that he is going to have a team that is going to flirt with bowl eligibility because the level yeah. of consistency that Georgia Southern has, uh, he should flirt with bowl eligibility. I mean, the non-con is not terrible, although it's not super easy. Like you've got Morgan State, but then you've got Ball State out of the back in late September. In between that, you've got the two road games against Nebraska and UAB, which probably going to be losses if we're being honest. Um, but I think that, like you're a solid enough program at Georgia Southern to think that yeah, Chip, like they can get to six and six. I feel like if they don't get to six and six, it's probably a tremendous failure. So my my anticipation for Georgia Southern in year one under Clayton is probably somewhere between seven and nine wins. Mm-hmm. Nine would be good. Nine would be probably yeah, your peak efficiency. Like you, everything clicks, everything works well. But my problem is, and what I fear is. You know, my biggest complaint about Clay Helton at USC was, you know, it was, well, besides the recruiting, because Clay Helton is the kind of culture program builder, but like those USC teams were just soft. Like I didn't feel like there was any real physicality to them. And even in the Sun Belt compared to the Pac 12, like the G5, I still think you've got to be physical to be a successful football team. And if Clay Helton, if he's bringing that same kind of approach, I don't have the highest hopes. So that's going to be an interesting thing to, for me to see. I want, I want, I, I like tough football teams. And Clay Helton doesn't have tough football teams. Yeah. Um, that 
Under Chad Lunsford, Georgia Southern won 10 games in 2018, won seven games in 2019, won eight games in 2020. They got off to a one and three start this past season before he was relieved of his duties. So um, something to keep an eye on as that Georgia Southern, we've, we mentioned, we, we spent so much time talking about Georgia Southern football here in the last like six to seven months, but the, the passion around that program um, is uh, is very, very strong. It goes back to the days of them competing for championships at the FCS level. So uh, no more option, pro-style spread offensive coordinators now from Nick. Thank you, Nick. Uh, I, I will say for the second part of that question about the Sun Belt going forward, I'll put it on the record here. I've said it already. I don't know if I've ever said it on the pod. The Sun Belt at some point in the very near future will be the best group of five conference in the country. It's going to surpass the American. Once the American loses Cincinnati, UCF, and Houston to the Big 12, and you look at the programs, the Sun Belt is, has added. It's like they've been very smart in – they've gone after FCS programs, yes, but they've targeted good FCS programs with a strong foundation and a fan base that cares about the football program. So you've got passionate fan bases. You're in the right part of the country as far as where the talent is currently located in that you could find the hidden gems and the guys that get kind of passed over by all the SEC schools. So I'm thinking that in about five years, we'll probably be seeing the Sun Belt getting like the New Year's six birth or at least really being competitive for them. And I think like you've seen it with Coastal, with App and these programs, they're in Louisiana. They're already trending in that direction. And we're going to see them now where they're getting ranked somewhere between 15 and 25. You're going to see them start cracking the top 15 soon. I agree with you there. I'm, I'm not ready to totally sell out on the Mountain West. The Mountain West is a little... Is it mercurial or you can kind of like bounce up and down? I guess the Mountain like West walk. will have good teams, but I'm saying from top to bottom, I think the Sun Belt's going to be far and away the best G5 conference. Yeah, because the uh, the the American got the airports and then the Sun Belt just went for all the small towns with the good programs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they said, we don't care about having to pay more for these bus rides. We're, we we want to get James Madison in here because James Madison competes for championships. Yep. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's a that's a very very good call there. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Make sure that you subscribe to the Cover Three Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been hanging out here, and we appreciate all of you, you in chat on YouTube.com slash Cover Three, smash that like button before you get out of here. And if you aren't subscribed, please subscribe and smash the bell for notifications. We are on emergency podcast alert season. We have texted each other. Nearly every day for like the last five days, wondering if Brian Harson's about to get fired. So um, make sure that you are subscribed to the Cover 3 Podcast on YouTube. Smash the bell so that when, if it happens, whenever it happens, uh, you will get an alert and know when the Cover 3 Podcast is going live to break it down. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you.